0: I want to read in your hearing this morning separate text in the New Testament. First of all, turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Beginning with verse 31 and reading through verse 36 of John the 8th chapter, and then we'll turn to Romans the 8th chapter, and then finally to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The first follow as I read John 8:31 through 36. Jesus therefore said to those Jews that had believed him, If you abide in my word, then are you truly my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's seed, and have never yet been in bondage to any man. How say you, you shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Everyone that commits sin is the servant of sin. And the servant, or bond-servant, abides not in the house forever. The Son abides forever. If therefore the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And then turn with me to Romans chapter 8, the first four verses. Romans 8, beginning with verse 1, reading through verse 4. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus made me free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the ordinance of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And then finally to Second Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even as from the Lord the Spirit. Again, please join me as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, now we would pray that you would remove all the obstacles without and within our hearts that we may receive the engrafted word and that we may grow thereby. O Lord, please do not give to us the measure of your goodness today that we deserve or even to the degree that we have asked and pursued it but come in mercy and in much grace for the sake of your Son whose blood avails for us, cleansing us from our sins and pouring out your Spirit upon us that we may preach pleasingly to you, that we may hear acceptably, and that the implications of what we hear may find their roots in our hearts And that they may have their fruit in our lives. O God, we now ask of you, in your great love and mercy, that you would help this preacher and help this congregation, and that we may know a visitation from you in mercy to the glory of our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. We are preaching through a series on the subject of the Holy Spirit. We have taken as our starting place the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters of the Gospel of John, the Gospel which we have been preaching through for several years, and coming to that section in which the Lord has expounded the rudiments and the basic issues of His Spirit, whom He would send to the church, after his departure to heaven, after his ascension and seating at the right hand of the Father, we have determined to concentrate on this doctrine and attempt to put it straight in our hearts and in our minds biblically. And we have preached on the person of the Holy Spirit and now are dealing with the work, or, as one has said, the operations of the Holy Spirit. We are seeking to deal with what it means to know the Spirit and what His work is about. And then we've come to the section regarding the gift of the Spirit or the indwelling of the Spirit. Not the gifts. We are not dealing with those yet, the enumeration of those gifts in the Scriptures that have caused so much controversy. Not the enumeration of them, but improper understanding of them. But we're dealing with the gift or the giving of the Spirit by God to those who believe upon his Son. We have first considered the biblical concept or idea of the gift of the Spirit and now are studying many of the benefits or what some have called fruits of the Spirit and we don't mean by that the Galatians 5 fruit but the result of his work and his indwelling in his people those wonderful, bountiful benefits enjoyed by all the people of God who by faith in Christ have received the promise of the Holy Spirit. You're familiar with the passage in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, when the Apostle Paul, having laid out the foundation of our salvation in the everlasting love of God, says to us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We have been blessed in Christ with all spiritual blessings. And God in His everlasting love has appointed His elect people to such blessings. He has conferred the highest benefits and privileges upon those for whom Christ has died, those who believe upon him. These blessings are ours by virtue of our union with Christ. Now, so far we have considered four of these ten that I've listed. We have thought on the subject of the Spirit's blessing of comfort to those who know his indwelling. Second, we studied His strengthening of His people by His presence in them. Third, we looked something at the doctrine of the assurance that believers have because of the Spirit who abides with them. And then fourth, the precious doctrine of the assistance in our prayers that we have by virtue of the Holy Spirit of God that indwells His people. Today, we intend to continue considering these manifold and precious blessings and benefits that are ours by the indwelling Spirit. They do not belong to those who are not in Christ. You have no right to them or access to them outside of Christ. But you who have put your faith in Christ, have forsaken your sins, have turned from your unrighteousness, have embraced Him with a whole heart, know. Something at least of these benefits and blessings. And this morning we seek to continue to unfold them before our hearts in order to encourage us in the faith and perhaps to create some holy jealousy in the hearts of any who don't know these benefits and who don't understand them. May God give grace to the unlearned, the uninitiated, the unconverted, that they may desire, that you may hunger, after the things about which we speak. And may God help us in our speaking of them, that we may see them as we ought to see them and have the results of them shown in our lives. This morning it is my intention to deal with three more of the remaining six of the benefits that I've listed. The six are these. In the fifth place, The instructing ministry, or the instruction that we receive by the indwelling Spirit. The sixth, the access and communion with God that we have by the Spirit. The seventh, the liberation that we've read about in these texts, and that's the one where we'll spend most of our time today. The liberation, that is the privilege of all those who are indwelt by God the Spirit. Eight, the mortification of sin, which is a benefit to those who have the Spirit. Ninth, the unity which we have with Christ and with our brethren because of the Spirit that dwells within us and tenth, the sealing or the preservation of God's people by His Spirit given to them. But we only intend this morning to cover three of these as God will allow and they are these. The instruction that we receive in the ways and the works Christ, or we might call it the illumination work of the Holy Spirit, which is especially provided to those who have Him living in them. Now, we're not going to spend much time on this one because we've dealt with this somewhat in our introductory concerns regarding the Spirit of Truth, who would lead the apostles into all truth, and then through the inscripturation of apostolic doctrine would provide for the Church of Christ throughout its generations. Adequate teaching and adequate knowledge for their needs. However, in the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit, there is a benefit and a privilege that goes beyond mere words on a book. You may read the Bible and not receive it. You may see its words and even understand intellectually much that it says without your heart grasping it. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit to illumine or illuminate the hearts of God's people that they may be instructed in the ways and the works of Christ and even be able to understand and interpret God's Word. But just briefly look with me at one text to underscore this benefit before we move on. 1 John chapter 2. We'll not take the time fully to explain these texts. But we can easily see from them, 1 John 2, verse 20 and verse 27, this benefit and privilege that is given to everyone who comes to Christ to know things that you cannot know apart from the Holy Spirit. Again, we're not suggesting that this is an extraordinary revelation to people who in other ways are ignorant. We're not suggesting that it is some sort of magical message from heaven that is clearly discernible or easily seen, nor is it the habit of an audible voice that some people have and others don't, nor, again, is it the privilege of some Christians and not of others. This is not an extraordinary provision for some who have gone a bit, further in the Christian faith than others, or who have had certain types of so-called spiritual experience that others haven't had. This is for every child of God, and it's true of every child of God. In 1 John chapter 2, he has been writing to the young men and to the old men. He's been writing both in terms of age and, I believe, it can be established spiritual experience. And he sees a difference in his congregation. He sees a difference in degrees of sanctification in his audience. But he's been dealing with these differences and addressing each different pocket of the church. But then in verse 20, he has just spoken of those who have gone out from them because they were not of them. And he says, verse 20, you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all You have an anointing with the Holy One and you know all things. Now does he mean by that text that the audience to whom he wrote, the readers of this epistle, had come to understand every data, every piece of fact in the history of the universe. That everything there is to be known, they consciously know it. I don't believe that will bear the scrutiny of the analogy of Scripture. I don't think that that's what he means. But he is contrasting these people with those who left and went out and departed and committed the sin unto death. Those who did not abide with us because they were not of us. Those who were capable of the great sin because the seed did not remain in them. They had not been born of God and therefore now have shown evidence that they weren't truly of God nor of the apostolic band because they've left and left the truth of Christ. And he's contrasting these with the believer who knows all things. And I believe he means at least this. There's something in the believer imparted by the indwelling Spirit that makes him able at the root of his life to discern the difference between following Christ and leaving Christ. He needs not that anybody add anything to this basic equipment that God has written on his soul when he saves him. He knows his master's voice, his shepherd's voice, and he follows him. Another, he will not follow. The Spirit of God has imparted to every believer an essence, an element of truth that is seen in John's epistle as an anointing from the Holy One and knowing all things. I presume all things needed to keep him where he is so he doesn't become one among those who left he knows what it takes to keep him in the faith and it's something that's a mysterious knowledge it's clearly enunciated in scripture and yet the knowledge of it is so deep that it's described as something of an anointing from the holy one of god and then verse 27 he says and as for you and he's writing because there are others who are trying to lead them astray in verse 26, and he doesn't want it to happen, but he says, As for you, the anointing which you received of him abides in you, and you need not that anyone teach you, but as his anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true and is no lie, and even as it taught you, you abide in him. At least this, I believe, is intended by this text. And there are many other things that could be expounded here. But at least this, something of the basic and essential truth of the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving, efficacy, and work is implanted into the heart of every true believer. Something of genuine, abiding faith. It is true it is no lie, and it is taught you, and the result, you abide in him. This abiding grows out of the Spirit's work in his anointing of teaching truth. Somehow the Spirit instructs in the heart at a basic level. I do not think that we could say that this text means that every saint has grown to full maturity in the knowledge of Christ. We are told to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Nor do I think that it means that any saint has reached the height of knowledge that ought to be reached and that we reach for. I believe what it means is that the Spirit of God has so worked in the heart of every believer that he will not ultimately depart from Christ because there's an anointing that abides with him, that pledges truth to him, and the work on his heart is such that he receives it, he believes it, and will continue to abide in it. I think that's what John's getting at, and I think that's just the context of the entire epistle. But at least it says this, brethren. Men cannot impart this to you. In one sense, he says, you need not that anyone teach you. That does not mean you don't need teachers. If it does, he'd be contradicting the epistle he's writing. He just says, I'm writing these things to you so you'll not be led astray. And then he says, you don't need any man to teach you. To take that and, and to assume that that means you don't need any human teachers would also say the Holy Spirit made a big mistake in appointing human teachers, even this epistle which is being written. Don't read what I'm writing you. Don't listen to my preaching. You have the Holy Spirit. That would be absurd. It would be the patent absurdity. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that the nature of this anointing is such that it does not come from men. It comes from God. And as such, it sticks and it stays And those who know what I'm saying know what I mean. Those who don't know will not know until the Spirit makes them to know it. Now, I know the danger of making statements like that. I'm not a stranger to the danger of statements like that. And I've grown up in a culture that has fallen prey to the dangers of a statement like that. We could say, well then, if it's the Spirit and it's direct and men can't do it, then why do I need to pay too much attention to men? I'm hearing voices from God. God is speaking to me, and it really doesn't matter what anybody else says. And that leads us down that path to ultimately leaving the words of the Spirit himself, because our own egos, our own deceptive hearts, almost invariably will cause us to hear things from God that God has not said if we're not disciplined by the objective revelation of that same Spirit confirming to us what we think we're hearing. We're not describing this as isolated from objective truth. We're not even describing an experience of receiving a word from God apart from the preached word or the Bible. We are describing, though, a work of the Spirit called anointing in this passage whereby those objective truths are made real to the heart and without which anointing you can't be saved. And you certainly won't endure in the faith. I believe it could be that this is the difference between those who come to believe the gospel but ultimately leave it like Simon Magus or perhaps others who are temporary faith or who are historical believers or all the other kinds of Faith is not saving faith. We're not of those who draw back under perdition, but of those who believe under the saving of the soul. Here is the difference the anointing of the Spirit. It is the indwelling ministry of the Spirit that imparts truth in such a way that it sticks. Now, once again, we don't have the time to break all this down and differentiate between the regenerating work of the Spirit. And the indwelling work of the Spirit, and we've already dealt with something of the essence of the difference between the two, we're not trying to confuse them, but the Spirit of God really does instruct us in the ways and in the works of Christ. And it's a precious thing for which we must be careful and grateful and pursuing. But in the next place, so as not to dwell unduly on the subject which we've dealt with somewhat already, we consider the next benefit in the sixth place that is coming upon the believer because of the spirit of God dwelling in him, and it is this the access to and, in the words of others, filial communion with God. Access to and filial communion with God. The word filio, referring to childhood, sonship, daughterhood, filios or filias or filia, I believe, would be the feminine, filial communion with God. Now, immediately that brings to our minds what we've talked about already regarding the Spirit and the doctrine of adoption. But let's look at some texts of Scripture to see that in the Spirit we human. And sinners have access to God. If you think about that a minute, or if you go home and meditate upon what you hear, it will blow your mind. It will cause you to go further in your appreciation than ordinarily. We have access to God. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. I would doubt that one who is expounding the essence of the gospel as Paul is doing in Ephesians could go very far without bringing in to focus this great privilege of access which is the direct benefit of the work of the Spirit in applying Christ to the heart. In Ephesians 3 verse 16 In his prayer for the Ephesians he is saying that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory that you may be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inward man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith to the end that you being rooted and grounded in love may be strong to apprehend with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then in chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 18, having announced the preaching of the gospel to those afar off and to those that were near, to the Jew and to the Gentile. Verse 18 tells us of chapter 2, For through him we both, Jew and Greek, have our access in one spirit unto the Father. An access unto God which we did not have and could not have had apart from the Spirit. But in one Spirit, both Jews and Gentiles have access to God on the one hand, and on the other hand, have this reality of such communion with God that language like being filled with all the fullness of God describes it. He is praying for a people who have been given the privilege not only of access to God, but also the kind of communion with God that is called strengthening with power through the Spirit in the inward man, Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be strong to apprehend with all the saints the breadth, length, height, and depth, and know, not with the brain alone, but to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. To know what you could not learn in a weekend seminar. To know what you cannot learn merely by reading a book. To know what you can know only in answer to prayer, in the work of God, in the heart, in the inner man, bringing to fruition in the saint the kind of felt communion with God that can do nothing but Spill over in a fullness of godly love and joy. Now, one of the griefs of preaching is, and especially in our generation, is to preach to audiences, many of whom, and perhaps the great majority of whom, can hardly apprehend these words themselves with any feeling because of our lack of experience. In the whole realm of communion with God. We hardly even feel anything when these statements are read. We can't, they don't grip us. We hardly know what they mean. Our lack of experience doesn't lack on to say, yeah I know what you're talking about. And because of our lack of this kind of wholeness of God, we on the one hand are tempted to grab for cheap tricks to get it, or on the other hand to be content with a life in the name of Christ that's devoid of much of it. And brethren, it is my contention that it is not acceptable for us to be satisfied with where we've attained in regard to the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of the love of Christ. It's not acceptable for us to be content that we've found our niche. We may be hearing some orthodox teaching and preaching. We may even see the blessing of God to some degree upon a church that's not enough if it comes short of what the Apostle prayed for the Ephesians. The goal is to know God. And the goal is to have felt communion with God. And though I much often uh, deal with some of you who struggle with the church, and I try to remind you, you're not your primary confidence is not rooted in how you're feeling, And in your observation of yourself, that's not where you get your first ground of faith and assurance. Nevertheless, I would not say to you, therefore, don't let that be a big issue. The fact that you can hear prayers and pray prayers and hear the Word and read the Word and hear preaching and nothing happens to you, that's not the ground of your confidence. Jesus has saved you anyway. That would not not be good pastoral counsel. Brethren, the goal is to know God to commune with God, and so to commune with God that we would be able to be described by mature and thinking Christians as those in whom the fullness of God dwells. I know whole movements in some denominations that had missed this aspect of the Christian life, in one case, a movement entitled Fullness, because they want so much to know what this means. And some in that movement have experienced a bit that some others haven't experienced. And they've tried to put it into some form so they can teach it and impart it. And they want God's people to enter into the fullness that is available to them in Christ. Well, I'm not sure that they're barking up all the right trees nor approaching it in all the right ways, but I'm not to be critical of a desire for there to be more in the American church of felt communion and fullness of God and the knowledge of the love of Christ in the inner man than we know and than we've experienced and than we've asked for. Frankly, brethren, many of us have never even prayed for such a thing. Some of us hardly have ever thought of such a thing. It's comforting when he says in verse 20 in chapter 3 of Ephesians, unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that you ask or think. According to the power that is at work in us. And what we're suggesting here is that the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit not only causes us to want and to expect more of God known Himself, but it causes us to have some confidence that it's accessible to us and we may grab it. Because He's able. And He's able to do more than we're even able to ask. He's able to answer even what we're unable to think. He's God and there's power at work in us. And that's the Holy Spirit. What we're saying is that our access to God is given us in one spirit. And our communion with God as children is provided by that same spirit and that anything short of a pursuit of a full enjoyment and appreciation of that is not a worthy goal for a saint. It could be that the absence of hunger for this is evidence that you have not the root of the matter in you. It could be that your lack of care about this business, that all you want is to get a good feeling that you're okay, you're going to get to go to heaven when you die, and the church thinks you're okay and they're not going to bug you much if you continue to live your life and do your thing and play your games, if you could just sort of exist like that and think of yourself as being acceptable, that would be all it would take. That's all you want. Well, either you are grossly immature and greatly emaciated in your development and therefore your tummy is so withdrawn and drawn up that it's content with so much less food than is normal for healthy people, or you've never been saved. And you don't have the root of the desire in you that is typical of every true believer. Brethren, I fear for that lack of hunger and thirst and that complacency and lethargy among professing Christians that seems to be content with a lazy, sleepy, apathetic life in Christ. Content to let others do the labor. Content to let others do the feeding. Content to get the gleanings if it happens to fall on me when I'm in the mood, when I'm not tired, when it doesn't tell my flesh to be mortified. Brethren, you're suffering as a result of that attitude. And you need not, because God is able. There are some who are so preoccupied with judging others that they themselves know not that they don't walk with God. There are some that are so preoccupied with checking out the worship or the preaching or what have you, and evaluating it looking for errors and mistakes that knowing God doesn't even enter their mind is the highest priority of their day. There are some who have enslaved themselves in managing others and in the process have lost themselves. Brethren, the Spirit of God comes and gives us access to God and filial of communion with God. This is of the essence of the transforming work of conversion turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And we'll not turn to Romans 8, 14, which we've read several times in this series, that we have been given the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. But in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17, (coughs) remember now, in the invitations of Christ to come and follow us, Often the formula is, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. If you're not willing to do that, you're not worthy of me, you cannot be my disciple, etc. In other words, the essence of conversion is a radical leaving of what you were doing and cleaving and to, turning from your idols to worship and serve the living God. That is the essence of Christian conversion. Where that doesn't happen, you haven't been converted to Christ. It's not just joining the Christian movement or, be, or accepting Christianity. It is a conversion of direction, of motive, of purpose, a radical change in your whole disposition. But intrinsic in that conversion is what we read in Second Corinthians six seventeen. Wherefore, come you out from among them and be you separate, says the Lord. That's the invitation for radical break in repentance. For the radical movement from one way of life to another that's here registered in the terms of separation from what you were and the company that, in which you kept and where you felt comfortable. Come out from among them and be you separate. Be you holy, for the Lord your God is holy. And look what he says. Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be to you a father. And you will be to me sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. If you break with the past and with your affections and with your idols in true repentance and cleaving to me through my son in faith, I will receive you and be to you a father. And that welcomes us into filial communion with and access to God. So this blessing of the Spirit comes at the outset of the Christian life and as a part and parcel of conversion when the radical break has taken place, the communion is achieved and obtained. And that's why sometimes in our asking people who say they've become Christians, we ask one of the questions, what are you doing in prayer? In Bible reading, and if a person says, well, I don't know how to read my Bible, we try to give them some help. If a person says, I don't don't want to read the Bible, prayer, I don't want to pray, I just want to be a Christian. Well, I've never had anybody say that. I've never had a person that was freshly registered with forgiveness of sin speaking as though he had no interest in prayer. Because something happens to the heart. He may not know what prayer is. He may not know how to pray. He may have no experience with prayer, but something in him wants to do business with God. He wants to talk to God. He wants to know God. God put that in him. He has a hunger and a thirst after righteousness, which will be satisfied. Where that is not present, salvation has not occurred. The Holy Spirit works this thing in the very essence of conversion. In one other text, Hebrews chapter 12, and it's an interesting text because it comes from the context of a negative experience or what appears to be, or seems to be, a negative experience. It's important to remember that the Christian life has much in it that seems negative. And the very negatives of which we speak are often springboards to the things that we desire in the positive realm. He says in verse 5 of Hebrews 12, You have forgotten the exhortation, and he refers to Proverbs chapter 3, which reasoned with you as with sons. My son, regard not lightly the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved of him. Why should you not treat that lightly, or why should you not faint? Why not faint when God chastens you? Why not give up? What else is God going to do to me? Why not just throw up your hand and say, well, if this is the way it's going to be the rest of my life, I can't stand that. I'm backing out of this deal. Why doesn't God just pour out blessing on me all the time? Why doesn't God make everything I do work? Oh, he he seems to expect me to be obedient to the law. He seems to want me to be consistent in my behavior. Every time I blow it, God deals with me. And it's not any fun. And I don't know how long I can live like this. When's God going to let me get some of the goodies that some of these other people have? When is my uh, house going to uh, not need any repairs? When is my car going to run right? When am I going to have a good influx of money? When is my health going to be normal? When are my children going to cooperate? Why doesn't God bless me is the way he seems to be blessing everybody else. You've forgotten the exhortation that deals with you as a son. You've forgot something. God has spoken to you, but he's spoken to you as a son. Regard not lightly the chastening of the Lord, nor saints when you're reproved, because whom the Lord loves, he chastens And scourges. not a positive word, brethren. Scourges. We used to my daddy used the word whipping. We didn't get spanking; we got whippings. And they, they didn't sound good to us. And so we tried to avoid them. And we learned there are certain things you could do to avoid whipping. That was the old the old language back where I grew up, whooping. And either you, sometimes you have to go out and cut the branch off the, the off the tree yourself, the switch, and bring it in and hand it. So that was some kids had to do that. I didn't have to do it. My dad was glad to provide all that. <laughs> but you know, never did my dad discipline me in that regard in in such a way that I had the feeling that perhaps I wasn't his son. I never went away questioning my relationship to my father. And I found in my own home, with our four, that when we have dealt with them honestly and tenderly, faithfully, and with discernment and not flying off the handle, when we've been consistent in our discipline, we have not lost them. We've never driven them further away from our affections. In fact, immediately thereafter, we find them much tenderer and warmer to us and much more ready to come up and show affection to us it seems to almost to be a formula. It has been tempting at times to wake up the first thing in the morning and just give a spanking on general principles just to gain that spirit. I say tempted. But uh, discipline them early, the Scripture says. Because of such benefits that come with that fatherly oversight and discipline. Don't despise it. Why? Because it is the Lord loving you when He does it. What we're saying is that when the Holy Spirit does his work in us, what he provides for us is such communion with God that we, are, we have even registered upon our consciences when he is chastening us the fact that he's our Father and he loves us. So that when you're devoid of chastening, you have reason to fear. Because illegitimate children never are, they're the ones that don't have access to fatherly care. Well, I'd like to read... And you're hearing a paragraph from the proposed, or one of the proposed revisions to the 1689 Confession. And this comes from a collation of many of the old writers and um, many of the old documents that we believe are so much needed in our day that are absent in the 1689, which was dealing with other kinds of controversies and heresies, but the thing that's developed in our day regarding the doctrine of the Holy Spirit we think could be enhanced and helped in a confession. And here's a paragraph that's been penned by those that have worked together to suggest some of these revisions. This is the paragraph I believe that you'll find in your confession. Uh, later on we'll read some that you haven't in your confession that to help you to see something of the expansion of this doctrine that's needed. But listen to what it says about those who've been adopted. All those that are justified, God vouchsafed or graciously granted as a privilege for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption. And that grace, it says, is that by which they are taken into the number. You're one of God's people. You're in the family. You're in the nation. And enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. Now, what is the privilege and the liberty of a child? I mean, one who lives in my home, does he have privileges that those who do not live in my home not have? Do I treat my children with a priority over your children? Yes, I do. I love your children. I pray for your children. We're glad when they come to see us, and we want our children to know them and love them and learn to live in context with them. But our kids come first in terms of kids. And yours do too. We wouldn't expect you to love ours the way you love yours, nor to give to them the benefits and privileges that you uh, would give to your own. Well, that's the way it is. Children of God have the liberties and privileges of children. But it translates this into the concept that we're children of God. We have the privileges and benefits that come with that. And if you can study the scripture enough, you may come to see that that's an immense thing to say. Further, they have his name put upon them, just as my children have my name put upon them. And dear brethren, let me suggest to you that is one of the reasons that both parents carrying their independent names is not a healthy thing. Get the inheritance name. Decide on whose name is going to be daddy and give it to the kids. Don't leave them to pick on whose name they're going to have and make them confused about where they get the inheritance and the privileges and the benefits. There are many other reasons, by the way, but there's a there's a biblical basis for a concept of putting the head of a house's name on the children. The inheritance is implied in the name. Receive the spirit of adoption have access to the throne of grace with boldness you don't have to back up to the throne you may come to the throne with boldness and lay requests at the feet of the Savior with great desire are enabled as we have seen to cry Abba Father I was reading that in the old days that Slaves in some of the Arabic countries were not allowed to use this term, Abba, speaking to their masters. But the sons in the house could use the term. And that's something of what the scriptural doctrine is. You were slaves, now you're sons. But listen further. The privileges of adoption. <coughs> They're unable to cry, Abba, Father. They're pitied. Remember the scripture, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those that fear him. Think about yourself for a minute and how God your Father looks upon you and pities you. And I don't mean the kind of pity that sort of feels sorry for somebody who has no future and no hope. I wish it could have worked out better for that pitiful little waif. That's not God's view. It's the kind of evangelical pity that has compassion to the end of improving your lot and with a full commitment to making things better for you. He looks at you tenderly as a father pities his children. Now, it ought to teach our, us fathers something about how we ought to deal with our children. We're not their adversaries, we're not their enemies, they're not threats to our ego. They're not a challenge to our success. Dear brethren, your children do not exist to make people think you're something. So that when they disobey you in front of others, your first problem should not be to saying, what's this going to look like about my ability to father or to mother? What are they going to think about our discipline in this house? That is a selfish and proud response. Your concern needs to be, Pity to the child. What can I do to help this child see the depth of the problem that's illustrated in this attitude and this action? Where have I failed? How can I change in my approach? But your father pities his children. I love to hear that. There are times I need to know that. I feel the need to know that. And to know that saves me. There are times I don't pity me. And I know that I have no excuse for what I've done. And I know that if I get what I deserve, I have no hope. And I know that if I were in God's place, I wouldn't give me anything. But then I know that I'm not God. My thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord, and your ways are not my ways. For as a father pities his children. That's the place at which his thoughts are so much different from ours. Not so much there in that text as in, in terms of size, but in terms of kind. He doesn't think the way we think. He pities his children. And it goes on to say, protected. Oh, how children need a father that gives a sense of order, consistency, discipline to the house. How a family needs some schedule, some predictability, that dad comes home that dad goes to work, that dad's available. It, comes, it, has to, it has to bear on mother's duties too, but this orderly home that gives security. When you never know what your dad's going to do, flying off the handle this time, trying to make it up to you with a little money next time, throwing a little affection at you, what does it do to you? It rattles the cage of a child. It produces the generations that we're looking at today. Fathers whose own spirits are not in control because they've given their minds over to the, the lust of this world and they don't know how to discipline any thought. And along with those lusts comes temper tantrums that are uncontrolled and men who cannot control their own spirits. When the scripture says that the man that controls his spirit is mightier than a man that takes a city and we have a bunch of wimps in our culture who can't even control their own temper and appetite. But children need to be protected. And who protects them best? Their fathers. And that's what God does for us. He protects us. Brethren, the devil is out to get us. What is your hope? Are you, are you stronger than the devil? Are you smarter than the devil? You'll not make it if it's up to you. But your Father protects you. And you have that by virtue of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption. Then it says, provided for. When have you ever had an eternal need that your Father has not met? When my Bible says he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, what is it you don't have that you need? You may be able to say there are things you want that you don't have. I don't believe an honest saint can say there's anything he needs that he doesn't already have in, in Christ. And then it says, and chastened by him as by a father. Not an enemy, but a father who in the chastening pities him, protects him. Loves him, helps him, looks out for him, teaches him, provides for him, yet never cast off. And you see, it's the abiding presence of the Spirit that continues to give me confidence that that's the case. And it's when the Spirit, which we'll deal with, the Lord willing, in the future, is withdrawn to some degree, that the fears begin to come. It's when I've grieved the Spirit or quenched the Spirit that I begin to lose that sense of my Father's pleasure and my Father's protection and my Father's pity. I, I don't lose those things. I lose the sense of them. And from my perspective, that's a frightening experience. And that's why God sometimes does that to us, brethren, because we start walking in such a way that if he did not do something, we would go down the tubes. We are a little cocky attitudes get away with us. Our little presumptuous spirits begin to truck traits along, and God the Spirit sometimes backs off. And then all of a sudden our little spirits notice something's wrong. Something we've tasted is not there. Something we've felt, something we've known that's precious to us, more precious than all the carnal appetites that we've been trying to satiate, is missing or backed off and diminished. And what do we do? We begin to go to God and say, Lord, have mercy. God as our Father does not cast us off, but sometimes he makes us taste just a bit of what it might be like if we had the whole dose of casting off. Dear brethren, thank God for sometimes being given that spirit of dullness and dryness that he's given you. Some of you continue to develop the dull spirit toward the things of God because there's sin, unmortified and unconfessed, that you refuse to deal with. What do you expect? You expect to get warm dealings with God when you yourself have no interest in dealing warmly with God? You expect to tell Him there are aspects of His law and the loving of Him with all your heart that you're not prepared to grant to Him but you also, but you do certainly want the benefits and fruits as if you were granting that to Him? You want to withhold some of you from God but to have Him withhold none of Himself from you? That kind of craft Selfishness is what marks our day. But God is gracious and never casts off His children. But He seals them to the day of redemption and they inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. So the Spirit provides us access to and filial communion with God, even in the chastenings of God the Father. And I do believe that one of His chastenings sometimes is that frown of displeasure that we sense in what we may call the diminishings of the influences of His Spirit. And God help us not to despise that, but to take it as a cue to get our act together and to pursue the Lord. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. But this morning in the last place, and let me try to be very brief about this, another privilege and benefit that comes to the children of God by virtue of the Spirit's indwelling and his work is liberation from bondage. Liberation from bondage. The texts that we read underscore this great privilege. But let me break down the concept for you, first of all, in three simple points. We read in John 8 that you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. That if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. We read in Romans chapter 8 that the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. And then we read in 2 Corinthians 3 that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And that's the text to which I want to direct your attention briefly in our closing minutes. That as the Spirit of God liberates us, I want you to see where this liberation registers itself, it seems to me, most typically in the Scriptures. You see, we have a mindset of liberty as casting off restraint. We think that freedom means minimize how much influence anybody else has on my life. People exhibit it in this world by shucking off all the laws and all the rules and doing as they please. The reckless driver is a public display of a kind of libertarianism that is not biblical. He doesn't recognize the right of anybody to impose a speed limit upon him. So he throws off the limits. In the church, it's often subtly seen in the failure of people to come for counsel about major decisions in their life. They don't want to hear the counsel. They, they have a something in their sense that knows what the counsel might be. And so they act arbitrarily. It's nothing more grievous to a pastor than to have a Christian church member come to him and tell him what he just did that made a major change in his life. There's nothing that breaks the pastor's heart, not because necessarily the pastor has a big ego that wants to know everything. Frankly, it would be a lot easier if you didn't have to deal with it. But it says something about the attitude of independence. It says that you, by nature, trust your own judgment. It says you don't trust others' judgments, or you don't want to hear it. And whenever you think like that, whenever you begin to act like that, you reveal this spirit of liberty that pervades our society and our culture and has infected the churches. And we would not overreact to that and bind consciences beyond the word of God, nor would we overreact to that and want you to be under our lordship. We're not lording it over the faith. However, what does it say when brethren make major decisions without consulting with trusted brethren? What does it say when you've done that? What are you telling us? What are we to assume you mean by that? Do you not trust us enough to help you with your decision or to understand the implications of it or to be gracious? Do you assume we always are going to bind you to something that goes beyond your faith? I hope not. I hope we haven't demonstrated that. But let me say to you, brethren, and in our country, the concept of liberty is, Nobody else can tell me what to do. Please, Mother, I'd rather do it myself. We see it in our children at an early age. When a parent says, Stop what you're doing, go do this. But I was planning to. And they begin to tell us all the rational reasons that what we're telling them is just not right. I've got plans. I have reasons for my plans. Bug off, Mother. And you see that demonstrated when you say, Johnny to a child and the child continues to walk away instead of immediately in between steps yes ma'am and brethren that's the standard you must approach when mother or daddy says a word you stop what you're doing and you listen to accept less than that is to accept this spirit of independent thinking I'm not saying that I disagree with all that happened, but I think there is room for some question regarding the biblical basis, even of the revolution in our own country. I didn't make a statement, I just said there's some question as to the biblical ground for the kind of revolutionary thinking that founded this country. I think there are grounds, and I think there are grounds. But we may have a nation that is steeped in a spirit of independence, and it's showing up now in its logical implications to our character. Well, the biblical doctrine of liberty is a long way from that. Not throwing off restraint, but liberty from something very very particular and very clearly laid out in the scripture. In the first place, we are liberated from From the blindness that we had to Old Covenant promises. From blindness to Old Covenant promises. We were in bondage to our blindness. There's nothing worse than being blind in terms of bondage to knowledge. Spiritual blindness is something a human being can't do anything about. You've spoken to people that are blind spiritually. And you can't break through. They can't see what you're saying. You can't make them understand there's a problem with the way they're thinking because they're blind to the fact that there's a problem. Well, the scriptures in 2 Corinthians 3 describe a blindness that was typical of the people under old covenant Israel and the majority of them in verses 14 and 15. But their minds were hardened. For unto this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains, it not being revealed to them that it was done away in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies upon their hearts. They can't see in Moses the promises of Messiah, so that when Messiah comes, they don't see him. Blindness has in part happened to Israel. All the way through this period of time till the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. They can't see. Blindness. So you can preach the gospel, and they don't see it, down in chapter 4, verse 4. In whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ is the image of God, should not dawn upon them. But in the Holy Spirit's ministry, There's liberty from this. And that's what chapter 3 is about. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. Because when he comes, the veil is taken away. Verse 16, whenever it shall turn to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. Liberty from what? Liberty from that blindness. I can see what an exaltation of freedom it is to be able to see and function in the light of what I can see. I could not see. For those of you that were converted later in your life, you know a lot more about that experience than some who came to Christ in their early years. You really know a stark contrast between blindness and sight. And you can look back and say, whereas I was blind, I now see. And you say, thanks be to God. That's what John Newton was able to say. I once was blind, but now I see. Well, there's liberty, you see. Liberty from blindness to the Old Covenant promises. They were in there, but they couldn't see them. A veil was over their eyes. But secondly, liberty from the condemnation of Old Covenant provision. We are freed from the condemnation of Old Covenant provision. Verse 9 of chapter 3 says, If the ministration of condemnation has glory, much rather does the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. The ministry of Moses and the covenant of Moses, the old covenant in Jeremiah 31, was a ministration of condemnation. And the people were in bondage to that. The law says the soul that sinneth it shall die. The scriptures tell us that by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. This is bondage. You have the law. You want to keep the law. You can't keep the law. You break the law. And the law which you're trying to keep says condemned. And the sentence it passes on you is death. Removal from the benefits and blessings of God. You cannot get them. You're without God and without hope. That's the sentence of the law. That's the ministration of condemnation. And the man that is seeking to be justified by keeping the Mosaic statutes is a frustrated man. And he may be consciously a proud Pharisee who doesn't think he has reason to be frustrated. But if he has any conscience at all, he knows this isn't working out. And in chapter 7 of Romans, the apostle struggles with this issue even in the heart of a believer who wants to keep the law of God, but can't. And he keeps saying, that which I would do, that I don't do. What I would not, that I find myself doing. Though the will of doing right is present with me, I notice another law at work in my members bringing me into captivity, the law of sin and death. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? Deliver me from this captivity. Well, what's the answer? The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Thou, there is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. It is in the Spirit of God coming and ministering Christ to the soul that liberates me from the condemnation of the provision made for me in the Old Covenant. It was a provision that could not do anything but condemn me. If I weren't a sinner, the law would have no problem with me. No, it wouldn't cause me a problem. If I weren't a sinner... The law couldn't touch me. But you see, that I'm a sinner. And the law keeps standing over my head and condemning me. And brethren, there are some perhaps in this place that because of your lack of development, growth, and growing in knowledge of Christ, maybe your lazy habits in the Word of God still live in some fashion as though you're in bondage to condemnation because you're continuing to look at the law and trying to obey it. You keep falling short and failing it, And rather than seeing the liberation you have from that condemnation in the blood of Christ applied by His Spirit, you keep focusing on your failure and you stay in your despair. I believe I can make that statement without diminishing the holy, right, perfect law of God. I believe I can make that statement without being an antinomian. I believe if I can't make that statement, I can't read the book of Romans. And I don't think I can speak of the liberation from the ministration of condemnation. Where was the condemnation? Not in the law. It was perfect, good, spiritual. It was that it found in me an occasion. Because I'm a sinner. But Christ has freed me from the law of sin and death by his Spirit. Brethren, the Holy Spirit brings liberation. That's why you must not grieve him or quench him. He's liberated you. Now, we're not divorcing this from the blood of Christ. This is all incorporated in the death of Christ. It is the death of Christ being applied who walk, who are in Christ Jesus. But how do you get in Christ Jesus? By the Spirit, without whom there is no application of atonement. But also we're not only freed from blindness to Old Covenant promises and condemnation of Old Covenant provision, but we're freed also from the despair of the Old Covenant's powerlessness. You see, the Old Covenant just couldn't do what we need done. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God did. Where the law condemned me, God condemned sin in the flesh, in his Son. In Hebrews chapter 7, which we read this morning, verse 18 and 19 says, there's a disannulling, no, we didn't read this verse, there's a disannulling of a foregoing commandment. Because of its weakness and unprofitableness. The commandment of the priestly provision of, under Moses. The ordinances of Moses were weak and unprofitable. And therefore they've been disannulled. For the law made nothing perfect. But look at the word he connects with this lack of the law's ability to make anything perfect. And a bringing in thereupon of a better what? Hope. The law made nothing perfect, it couldn't. So what has God done? He's brought in a better hope. What is that hope, it's The blood of Christ, the intercessory ministry of Christ, the abiding of His Spirit, whom He sent to abide with us and comfort us by the application of Christ to us, the teaching of Christ to us, and it is in that that we're liberated from the despair of the old covenant's powerlessness. You can't keep the law. And the law can't save you. And the Mosaic statues couldn't save. And the priesthood and the blood of bulls and goats, they were weak, powerless, useless. They could not take away sin. But we're no longer in despair because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit living within us. Well, let me summarize this by suggesting the contrast of this despair in the doctrine of assurance. Because, see, the Spirit of God gives us assurance of justification it's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that's made me free from the law of sin and death not only in reality but in my conscience he's not only given me assurance of justification though but he's given me boldness of access because your son has been your heirs and you can cry all by father God has sent his spirit into your son into you so what do I do I'm able, according to Hebrews chapter 10, boldly to approach the throne of grace, to through the veil, the new and living way opened up at the cost of the blood of Christ. And I'm encouraged to come to that throne and to approach God and to come boldly because God has removed the obstacle and God has removed the problem. And I now have filial access to God and the Holy Spirit has removed my despair in thinking, I can't get help. I sinned too much. My God would never listen to me. Why ask now? Brethren, what else can you do? Where else could you go? When Jesus looked at the apostles upon the departure of a multitude of people because of his preaching, he said, will you two go away? And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Some of you still have a hard time accepting that. And when you blow it, what do you tend to do? You tend in your heart to go into despair and say, What's the use? But the spirit of life in Christ Jesus says, Go to the throne and find grace to help in time of need. Do you think that need is just when you, you, you need a car repair? The primary registration of the priestly work of Christ is not for your car, brethren, but for your heart. Now, God may use your car to make you think about what your shape is. Maybe he'll mess up everything in your life until you start to say, wait a minute, maybe I've got a spiritual problem too. But the provision God has made pertains to life and godliness. Avail yourself to that provision. It's not noble. It's not a righteous thing. You're doing God no favors by withdrawing from the throne because you've sinned. Because it's the throne of grace. It's there for sinners who sits upon it. One in whose hands, side, and feet you may see the prince of suffering for your sins. Would you say, well, I know you died. But I would not dare lay sin upon you. Brethren, that death is done. You cannot exhaust the value and the effects of that blood. You cannot lay too much sin on him. Do not take that. I dare think none would take that as an excuse to continue to live in sin. I dare not believe any would say, Well, then, sin can't be that important or critical. How critical does it need to be to kill the Son of God? But I hope that you can see that in the Spirit of God who makes us feel the registration of our Sonship, there's boldness of access. We're guaranteed by our God that we have access to the throne in Jesus' name and His Spirit has brought that. But He also has given us confidence in in the resurrection of our body. In Romans 8-11, He that dwells in you will also quicken your mortal body he that raised up Christ from the dead will quicken your mortal body so why do you need to know that because brethren we're tempted by several isms Platonism that tends to think that the body means nothing and is not valuable and has no part in this and as soon as we can escape the body the happier we'll be all the forms of Hinduism and much of this is invading America people have tried everything in their bodies they've gotten frustrated so they're running off into the mountains and some of these spiritual groups trying to escape the responsibilities of the body the doctrine of the bodily resurrection and the assurance that is brought by the spirit that dwells in us that our bodies will be raised is deliverance from that false teaching it also will save us from hedonism that thinks the body is everything and we want to gratify it at every point the spirit of God is going to raise these mortal bodies into glorified bodies and they are not here to serve themselves it also saves us from fatalism and with some people just look at their shape in this world and they think there's no point in going on But that body in which you sit this morning is going to be raised if you're in Christ and the confidence of that is by the spirit of God that dwells in us because he that raised Christ from the dead will also quicken your mortal bodies by the spirit that lives in you how indebted are we to the ministry of the Holy Spirit that these tired bodies are looking forward to something better, not something worse. The grave is not the last word to us. We are not in despair at this point, but we are in joyful anticipation of a day when backs will not bend, throats will not fail, minds will not forget, weakness will be swallowed up in strength and death in life by the Spirit of God dwelling in us who will quicken our mortal bodies. But in the last place, he gives us hope of glory. Not only confidence of the resurrection, but beyond just getting a new body, glorified. What does Colossians 1.27 tell us? That it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is by giving his spirit to us that we have registered in us the confident hope that we shall be like him. He is transforming us. Does it not say that this, where the Spirit of the Lord is, their liberty? And as we behold through a mirror His face, we are transformed from one stage of glory to another, as by the Lord the Spirit. What is the Spirit doing? He is conforming us to Christ. Do we have confidence that we will make it to the end? Yes, the Spirit dwelling in us and the Word of God promising that that's the goal to which He's been committed in keeping with covenant benefit and blessing, gives us hope of glory. Brethren, this is not the last state you'll find yourself in. You will be made like him because you'll see him as he is and you will rejoice in glory. Now that foretaste of glory is given us by his spirit that dwells in us so that we'll not have to be like David who said, I shall now someday perish at the hand of Saul. The saint doesn't need to live like that. Well, if it gets any worse than this, as some old pessimistic saint said when he woke up, he said, well, if every day is going to be like tomorrow, I might as well not even wake up. Well, if you think about that, that's a rather out- negative outlook on life. If every day's like tomorrow, no use in getting up. Some of you live like that. Well, my brethren, my Bible tells me that there's a tomorrow that is swallowed up in the glory of God. And the Spirit of God is that by which God will make me one with Him in such a perfection that I'll not even have to deal with my sin someday. There will be a day I won't be having to do with all this chastening and all this confessing and all this grieving and all this frustration and all this labor and all this captivity to this body of death. The hope of glory is mine because Christ by His Spirit is in me. Do you want to know the hope of glory? Do you want to enjoy the benefits that have been registered to us by the promises of God? Then do this. Do not grieve the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not withdraw from the ministry of His Word. Do not play games with His law. Because in doing so, the ministry of registration on your conscience of these confident hopes will be diminished. Don't do it. Develop tenderness to the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you. Be careful how you conduct yourself in His presence. Be careful what you pollute yourself with as He, the Holy One, dwells you. Oh, dear people of God. What we kinds of people ought we to live in the light of the message that says God lives in us? May God give us grace to understand something of the implication of the Holy Spirit's indwelling. The manifold and wonderful blessings which rest upon the head of believers in Christ cries out for our highest energies of gratitude. And they also call for our deepest love to God. We love because he first loved us. That's going to require an exercise of habit and a practice of brotherly edification, brethren. What are you supposed to do with each other to make these things more and more real? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father by him. In that context and habitual atmosphere, the increasing of the registration of the blessing and the promises of the benefits of the Holy Spirit will become more and more joyous for us, and we'll live in the light of them. Dear brethren, I don't know what it is in your life that would make you walk out of here this morning and not say, Oh, Lord, I want to know more about this. I want to have this. I want to know the working of your Spirit. I don't know what it is hindering you. But I, I don't believe it's worth it. And I would charge you to confess whatever sin it is, remove whatever anger and bitterness there is, get rid of whatever questionings are going through your mind and run to the cross of Christ and to the foot of the throne of God and say, Lord, pour out your Spirit on me that I may know these things and walk in the light of them. I want more of this. And I want others to be able to see the more of it and give God glory for it. Let us pray. Our Father, it is reasonable for us to give you thanks and to exalt in our spirits regarding what you have provided us in your spirit. It is reasonable for us to live our lives in gratitude because you have done nothing less than save us and deliver us. How much more, then, is it such a tragedy to see those who know not you and who know not the forgiveness of sin and who know not the dwelling of your spirit within us? Oh, God, we wish we could put it into words, all that's gained and all that's lost by either having or not having your Spirit. But we would ask that where we are diminished in our experience and appreciation for him, that you may increase the measure of his work in us and our sensitivity and response. Oh, God, the Spirit, make you the saints to live increasingly in the light of the truth of the great hope and confidence that is ours because of you. And deal now with sinners who are blind to these things and open the heart and break the will and make Christ to be precious to them. Hear us, O God, our Father, who have not held back your Holy Spirit from us, but have poured him out upon us. Hear us, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.